Hey, anybody seen a movie sequel that was really bad? I'm curious, when you think about worst sequels, what do you got? Oh, that hurts. The prequels don't count as sequels. They actually probably never existed, even though I own them. But that's another story. I'll tell my counselor. Uh, Jaws 3. Wasn't it Jaws 3D? Yeah. What else you got? You got to have some good ones. Rocky 45, Rocky 72, yeah. Let me guess. He wins the last fight. The, The second Bruce Almighty. Evan Almighty. That was the Ark one. Okay. No. No, yeah. Dumb and Dumber 2. You know, when your best movie title is Dumb and Dumber, you should probably just leave it there. What is the, is the sequel just called Dumbest? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Grease 2? Now see, I don't know. That's the one I saw a lot. Denise and Caroline are Grease 1, and I'm like, I never saw that one, but Grease 2 was like on constant rewind on cable when I was a kid. I, I will spare you the songs, because they're not church appropriate, most of them. <laughs> anyway, best sequels. You got some good sequels out there. We watched one the other night. Um, I'm a big Marvel Universe person, and <laughs> somebody got the spirit. I don't know. There we go. Shelly's so proud. No. And we, uh, we watched Captain America Civil War. Of all those uh, Marvel Universe ones, the Captain America, those three movies are really, really, really good. You got some other sequels you like? Okay, Star Wars. Did somebody say Star Wars? Thor. Oh, okay, Thor. Those, those Marvel. What did you say, Manny? Okay, they won an Oscar. I guess that's got to stay there. Somebody in the back said something. Star Wars. <laughs> you, you two can talk about that and sort it out on the way home. We'll pray for you. There you go. Avengers. Well, that's... Never mind. Yeah. So so sequels, right? They're, they're kind of normal. They're out there. Um, you know, they're everywhere you look. And, and at times you feel like in our world, it's just they don't have any new ideas. Like they get stuck, and they're just, let's just, and if it's not a sequel, it's a remake, or now we're doing remakes of sequels, which has got to be fabulous. And, and I, I talk about that because when I think about the disciples, they had in their lives with Jesus a sequel, several sequels, to what we started talking about last week. It's remarkable how often, in fact, they wanted to replay this same kind of thing. Remember last week we looked at um, the discussion that happened when the sons of Zebedee's mom comes to Jesus and they ask, hey, can my boys, one sit on your right and one sit on your left when you get to the, the kingdom? And of course, kind of went on from there. Uh, but that's not the only time in Scripture that that kind of argument plays itself out. In fact, at least three other times, it may be a, a parallel account, not sure there's some dispute over that, but, but I, I list them in, in uh, Matthew chapter 18, which is just a couple 
chapters before Matthew 20, which is what we looked at last week. We're not going to turn there. You don't have to. Well, you can go if you want. Anytime you open your Bible is good with me, but I'm just saying we're not going to spend our time there. Anyway, back to my point. Matthew chapter 18, they argue over who is the greatest. Luke chapter, Mark chapter 9 and Luke chapter 9, the same argument comes up among these disciples. And here's the one that really gets me. Luke chapter 22 shows up that the disciples argue about who's greatest in the kingdom. And what I want to talk about today is why I think it's so remarkable that this comes up. It's the context in which the disciples in Luke chapter 22 have this discussion. We're not going to look at Luke 22. We're going to look at a parallel account of that night that that argument eventually happened, that sequel to the same old, same old thing happened. It's in John chapter 13. John is, uh, in his account of the life of Jesus, chapter 13 starts a very unique section. Chapter 13, and over the next five chapters, we get an up-close, personal, sort of blow-by-blow, play-by-play account of the night of the Last Supper. Now, when you came in today, if you're one of our, our regulars, you know what that table means, and I'm guessing if you've been around churches at all, a lot of times when you go into church and you see a table with those, those kind of uh, utensils on it, those kind of plates on it, you might think, oh, they're going to do the Lord's Supper, or communion. And that's what we're going to do a little later today. So it seemed ap- appropriate to look at in the life of Jesus when that happened. And in John chapter 13, John really gives us this elongated version, the longest, most detailed uh, picture of the night of the Last Supper that we have. Now, we're not going to look at all five chapters, aren't you grateful, because we're, you know, already at quarter till. But, we're going to look at a few verses, and let's start with John chapter 13, verse 1. How does John set this up? He says it was just before the Passover feast. Now, one of the things we often need to remember as believers, when we come to this time where we celebrate the Lord's Supper, uh, this comes out of the Jewish Passover feast. Jesus was a Jewish man. His disciples Jewish, they lived in, in the, the area of Israel, and in Jerusalem, the capital city, is where they're going to celebrate this, or outside of Jerusalem, they're going to celebrate this feast. Just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew, listen to this, the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. And John opens this section. The, the public ministry of Jesus sort of ends at the end of chapter 12. John 13, he opens what's to follow through the rest of his, his book, his account of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus by saying what you're about to see. If you thought you understood how much Jesus loved his disciples, you're about to see magnified a thousandfold just how great that love was for them. Verse 2, the evening meal was being served. And the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. So we got that kind of undercurrent happening. These closest to Jesus gathered at this very intimate supper, this Passover celebration, and Judas is there. Jesus, and then verse 3 is just remarkable to me. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God, and that he was returning to God. This is really what we spent all of last week talking about. 
we looked at the title that was used for Jesus, that he used for himself, Son of Man. And we traced it back to the Old Testament. We saw the picture of the Son of Man isn't you know, just a, a haphazard title, but in the book of Daniel, we see the, the image of the Son of Man coming with the clouds from the Father, the Ancient of Days, God appointing the Son of Man and giving him a position of power and authority and glory so that he is even worshipped, this, this picture of Jesus, that he would use that phrase at his own trial to make those who were religious leaders finally and ultimately get the charge to stick because he, in their mind, committed blasphemy by claiming to be God, by using that title. Jesus understood who he was. And we have to kind of camp out there for just a second to see that everything that comes next follows from this. What Jesus did next came out of the reality of this verse. He knew who he was. He knew where he had come from. He knew where he was about to go to. All that was coming in the next hours of his life, in the next couple of days of his life, all the the tragedy of the cross, he had to prepare himself in this minute by knowing these very things. He had to know who he was. He had to know that he had come from God, that he's returning to God. Because he knew that, what could he do? Verse 4. So, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus, the Son of Man, who we've seen the picture God would one day appoint to that high position, in that moment did the lowliest thing. The only reason he could do that is because he truly understood who he was. Because you know, from your experience, from my experience, people that are trying to prove something about themselves usually don't prove it by doing something lowly, do they? If you have an inferiority complex and you want the people around you to to look up to you in our world, what are you going to do? You're going to want to stand out. You're going to want to exercise some measure of authority. You want to look the part so people will say, ooh, ah. That's somebody to be reckoned with. That's somebody of influence. That's someone of wealth. You know, you, if you're trying to prove you're wealthy, you go out to dinner, you want to order the most expensive thing and treat the whole table, right? Okay. Here's, here's a better one. I know you can relate to this. You're coming south on the turnpike to the Keys. And you know where 874 comes in? Okay, you're, we're tracking. It's about 430 on Friday afternoon, and you're coming south on the turnpike. And you know, right before 874 merges in, there's an exit, and then there's an exit for the service plaza, and then there's the merge. You, you with me? Okay. And you know, if you've been around a while, the best lane to be in is probably in the left lane because the right two lanes are eventually going to be exit only. So I'm smart, and I kind of move over into the left lane, even though I know... That's probably the slower one because, right, there's people on this side that know the same thing you know, but see that it's moving faster. And so they zip there. 
or this is going to get you. Because they've got that exit just back there and because that service plaza, there's an on-ramp from the service plaza. Has this ever happened to you? You're sitting in the left lane waiting patiently. And if you're like me, you're looking in your rearview mirror because you know it's going to happen and you want to get mad about it. And you see somebody about 10 cars behind you because there's an open lane over here that nobody's using because we all know it's not really a lane. <laughs> jump out of line, jump in that lane and, <laughs> and force their way in front of you. Have you been there? We could take a witness for every intersection between here and <laughs> Nome, Alaska, and we'd probably find out. My second favorite is when you're, if you're like me, you're driving along the highway and you see those signs. Right lane ends, merge left, two miles. Right lane in, merge left, a mile and a half. Right lane ends, merge left, a mile. You know, they're counting you down. And what do you do? Because you're all good Christian folk. You, you merge left. You get in that lane. You find your opening and you get in. And while you're in that lane, what's happening in the lane that's going to end? A pair, you, I just pray for them because I figure they can't read. <laughs> no, I, They zip around. Or, again, the people in that line, because it's slow, see the opening over there and they get over there and they zip around, right? This is the modern day washing people's feet. Okay, maybe not exactly, but nonetheless. But you understand, why do people do that? I don't know. I can't answer the question. But apparently they are more important than you or me or any of us. Unless you do that and then, you know, write it on that prayer card so we know what to pray for you for and leave it on your pew. We'll pick it up. You don't have to put your name. You shall remain anonymous, but God knows. <laughs> you know, we, we live in a world where that's symptomatic of a greater cultural issue where we are taught to look out for number one, where we are taught to act most often in our own self-interest, to further our own agendas, to further our own pursuits, and we do things at times, maybe later we look back and say, oh, that wasn't the best thing, but we do things, and that's a, a very simple thing. We jump in that lane, we pass, because we think in that moment we are the most important person on that highway, and all these other peons need to get behind me. Just one example. Jesus knew what was coming. Right? I mean, it says that in this passage. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world. Verse 1. How is he going to leave this world? Well, to get to the ascension, he's got to go through the crucifixion. And we know that's not a good thing because Jesus himself prays, is there any other way, Father, let this cup pass from me? He doesn't go into it with any doubt that it's going to be awful. And if there was ever a time that someone had an excuse to be thinking about themselves and their interests, to be distracted about the stuff going on around them, I'm going to say that qualifies. A man knowing he's about to face an excruciating death. Why is it an excruciating death? That word literally means out of the cross. We get that word for extreme pain, from what Jesus would go through on the cross. He had every right to think about himself. He had every right to say, or to not 
focus on anything else. He had, as the man in the room who came from God, who was anointed of God, who would be the Messiah, as he looked around, had every right to say, I am the last person here that should be washing people's feet. And by the way, this is a pretty important thing. Because what night are we on? It says at the beginning of this passage, it's the Passover night. If you've come here before, we've done a, a Seder a time or two. We haven't done the whole meal, but we've gone through the steps. And part of the progression of the Seder meal is four questions, where children, usually children ask the questions of the elders that are at the table. And the fourth question is, why on this night do we eat reclining when all other nights we eat either reclining or sitting? It's one of the questions. It's, It's how they would eat. Now, we don't eat that way. We come into our houses, most of us have, you know, table, well, not this high, but, you know, normal-sized tables and chairs that we sit in, and our feet go where? Under the table. Right? Please tell me yes. We're all tracking on that. Let's pretend we're in the first century and it's Passover night. And you're coming into the house, and you're going to eat this meal. The first thing you'll notice is the table's about this high. It's not a big table. It's not a normal table. It's just a few inches off the floor. That's because your feet aren't going to go under it. You're going to recline. And to get to that first century Passover meal, you had one main method of transportation. You were walking. And you were not walking maybe even for a short distance. It could have been a long day on your feet. And in that day and time, Uh, You know, we usually have socks and shoes, although we are in the Keys. Anybody wearing flip-flops today? Can I get a witness? You know how that is, but nonetheless. And that was the sandal was the more common type shoe of the day. And just, sorry, but I'm going there. It's not pretty. It's hot outside. This is a fall feast. This is about... um, I mean, excuse me, a spring feast, I shouldn't say. The fall feast time is actually Rosh Hashanah, I think, is, is today or tomorrow. Um, but this is a spring feast, so it's not the winter. It's, it's getting warm. Um, you've been walking. When it's warm, you might sweat. You're walking with sandals on dirt roads, so dirt's getting on. What happens when you mix water and dirt or sweat and dirt? You get mud. So your, your legs are sweating and running down into the mud that's on your feet, and that mud is getting caked on your ankles, on your feet, between your toes, under your toenails, and you're going to go in. Now, just, we're not done yet. You're going to go take the Passover, and your feet are going to go at a reclining position towards someone else's and very near to the table where the food is. Are you hungry? How would, I mean, some of us don't even like feet that are clean, much less you know, dirt crusted between the toes and under the toenails in your face and by your food feet. Mm-mm, good. This is what we've got going on. This is why the typical thing in most households would be to have someone at the door wash the feet of the people coming in. It was just a matter of courtesy, of cleanliness, because particularly in the nature of the Passover meal, how you were going to be not seated, but reclining next to people. And that doesn't happen this night. And nobody does it. Oh, they knew it needed to be done. 
They'd been around long enough. They'd had it done to them until Jesus, understanding who he was, understanding where he'd come from and where he was going, got up and wrapped the towel around and grabbed the basin and began to wash their feet. Which is why when you read Luke 22, it's so fascinating because the first part of the chapter, the Lord's Supper has happened. They've gone through the whole Passover meal. The, he's given the cup, he's given, or the, given the bread, given the cup. We get some of the wording we, we might even use today in our observance of the Passover. All that's happened, which means he's also washed their feet. And they, sitting around the table after dinner, start having an argument over who of us is the greatest. You, you didn't see what happened? Probably a couple of three hours ago by now. It wasn't just a few minutes ago. You don't remember that the only one at this table that has a claim of any sort of authority and power, and his claim isn't just a little claim, it's the ultimate claim, He is the one who got down and washed your feet so that Peter would even object, no way, you're not not doing that. No, you're not washing my... No, notice Peter didn't say, no, Jesus, let me take the basin. He just said, no, you're not washing my feet. To which Jesus said, well, if I don't wash your feet, you got no part of me. So Peter says, then, if that's what it takes... Let's not stop at the feet. Peter understood about himself, and we've seen a few stories about the fellow. Jesus said, no, that's not necessary. Once you've been washed, once you're one of mine, you're good. But just every once in a while, you need a little washing of the feet. And then a few verses later, he tells the disciples, it's it's verse 16 um, in chapter 13. He says this, if I can find it real quick. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. What does that message mean after he, the master, washes they, the disciples' feet? No servant is greater than his master. What's he saying? I, the master, washed your feet, so don't you think you don't have to wash your feet? Feet. You don't have to do anything subservient because you're better than me. Is that where you want to go? Peter, James, John, let's go down the, the list here. No, he, in that moment, as we said last week, turned the world upside down. The Son of Man was our verse last week that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. There was a book written several years ago by uh, Rodney Stark. Long title. The short title is The Rise of Christianity. The subtitle, How the Obscure Nominal Jesus Movement Became a Force to be Reckoned With. In the first 200 years of Christianity, the Jesus Movement, as he calls it in his title, the followers of Jesus that started out as this ragtag bunch of a couple of hundred, in about 200 years grow to over 6 million people. That's pretty phenomenal growth, yes? They might even get on a cover of a Christian magazine these days if they had them back then. You know, that's kind of like, wow, we're, everybody would go to that church, First Baptist of Jerusalem. I'm sure it was a Baptist church, right? <laughs> First Christian? I don't know. They probably, they probably were non-denominational back then. I don't, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Anyway, 
from a few hundred to six million people. And, and this author, Rodney Stark, looks at it in an interesting way. He looks at it from a sociological perspective. He says, what are the things that we've seen sociologically? That's, he's at Baylor University at the time he wrote this. That's kind of his field. He's not necessarily the, the religious theology professor. He's more in the sociology realm. And he looks at what are the sociological dynamics that made that happen. And one of the things that he points to, which is really remarkable to me, is he said he believes the first century church was so attractive because for the people in the ancient world, they made life more bearable. And then he begins to talk about specific things. How did they make life more bearable? One way is that when uh, disease or plague would strike cities, people would naturally flee. They'd leave the city. They'd get away from it. Christians went into the cities or stayed in the cities they were in and cared for the people that nobody else wanted anything to do with. Pretty remarkable. Another thing that happened or was the reality in that, that time in the early first century is married men were free to sleep with whomever in that culture, and often they would, and prostitution was particularly one of those things that would happen, and because of that, pregnancies would happen, and the ones that were impregnated because it was a married man, there was no claim there, they would often just leave the children out to die of exposure. And the first century Christians were the ones that went in and rescued those babies and brought them up. Instead of watching them die, they would take them in. Um, Another thing that, that they would do is they would, if you've read the Bible, this is no surprise, the first century encouraged married men to be faithful. What a shock. Listen, guys, that's not the best plan. I know culturally it's okay, but let's not do that sort of thing. And that improved the stability of the family. And, and so these are the kind of things that, that they would do in the first century so that in that culture people saw that and they noticed this group of people did things that nobody else did, served people, served often the lowest of the low. I mean, a, a child left, we, we talk about the value of a life, the value of a child's life, obviously, but in that culture it was meaningless. Just leave them out on the street to, to die of exposure. Obviously that tells you the value of that child's life in that day and time and, and they would step in and they would rescue and they would care for in fact, it was estimated by about 250 A.D. Uh, the church just in Rome was caring for over 1,500 diseased or needy people that otherwise would have died or, or been outcast at the very least in their, in their um, society. And, and he writes from this book, and he says, as I look at it, that's a huge dynamic that happened in the early church. The way they acted, the way they treated, the way in that culture they took up the cause of those who were poor, those who were orphans, women, the, the sick, stood out, and it became attractive. Because if you were particularly in one of those categories, they were the only ones that in your mind had hope. And so the church went from a few hundred to six million. Now that was before... There were big church buildings. That was before you could stream 100 sermons on your phone. That was before the, the multi-million dollar properties and cathedrals were built. That was before any of the stuff that in our mind, if you go to conferences, they tell you this is, this is, this is what you need. Now, there's value in that. We've been talking about that on Sunday morning. But the, the point is, all of that, all the marketing in the world of a church 
that doesn't care about people ain't going to make a difference. Because people are going to come in and say, well, they told me to come, but they're just real jerks. I'm not talking about us. You guys are lovely. I mean that, really. You're awesome. You put up with me for 17 years. Plus. And, you know, we've gone through stuff together. You've been gracious and loving at times when you had every right not to be. With us, with each other. That's an awesome thing. That speaks to people Sometimes in a way, let me tell you my doctrinal statement, doesn't. We need to talk about who Jesus is. We need to talk about he's, he's the Savior, he's the Son of God. We, we got to get there. And I think we do. But Jesus demonstrates, because he knew who he was, because he was secure in his past and his future, he was willing to take up the towel and do what nobody else wanted to do. He didn't just say, listen, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. When the opportunity rose, he demonstrated it. I don't, don't know if you've ever been in some churches, there are actually uh, foot washing services. It's treated as a, almost like a, an ordinance or a sacrament in some places. Um, and I don't know if you've ever been in that setting. Um, and I'm not, we don't do that as a church here because I think the principle isn't the particulars of washing feet because most of the time in our culture, the way we live, you know, we're not reclining. We have shoes and socks. The, the, the facilities we have to stay clean are much better. In fact, I bet some of you have lotions for face and hands and feet and elbows and knees, right? Head, shoulders, knees and toes, knees and... You don't know that one? Okay. I mean, we, you know, so, so that's it. But that doesn't mean that we're done. Oh, we don't, do, we don't need to do that anymore. Because Jesus, yes, he says, you should wash each other's feet, but in the next verse he says, go and do as I have done. Not what I have done, exactly, but as I have done. What does that emphasis look like today? One of the things that we did years ago, John Wesley was talking when he was here about servant evangelism. And I remember this because it was interesting. We decided to do a servant evangelism project where we went to Kmart and we said, we would like to clean your break room and your employee's bathroom. Yeah, there weren't a lot of people that came that day. <laughs> we, we didn't publicize that ahead of time, no. We had some of us that went and we did that. And, and I'm telling the people that came, why do you want to do that? That's crazy. Yeah, it is. But it's hard to overlook that, isn't it? You know, one of, you know, we do some different things um, in our church, and, and one of the, the things I don't want to do today is say, listen, here's our program of how to serve others. Because that's not, I don't think, the point. We do some things. We give opportunities for us to serve people in our community whether it's through our school supply giveaway, um, whether in a couple months when we do our um, gift wrapping around Christmas, you know, we do some things just, look, here's something that goes on. How can this meet a practical need in our society? But, but it's not a programmatic thing that I want to push today. It's not like here's another thing to put on your calendar. It's oh, Operation Christmas Child. That's a service. 
don't want to leave that out. Um, you know, we serve people in those ways. But the bigger picture is when you just go through your everyday walking around life, you're going to have opportunity to see needs that you may also have the privilege of meeting. I don't know what that means. I'm not telling you every time you see somebody that's holding up a sign that you give them money on the side of the road. That's not it either. But it's you know, because you've probably, most of you have been there when something happens, and unlike other times, that nagging thing starts to get you. Like, I should really do something about that. Yes. Yes. And you're probably like me, and that nagging thing I just ignore because I got another appointment or, uh, you know, maybe da, 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 I come up with excuses. Here's all I'm saying. When that nagging thing starts, let's call that the voice of the Holy Spirit of God. You know, that prompting. Is that a better thing? I don't want to say God is a nagging voice. That's bad. That's not good. good uh, picture. But that prompting, that still small voice, that little nudge, all I'm saying is next time don't ignore it. I can't promise you things will turn upside down because for the disciples it didn't just a few minutes later. Hey, look, which one of us is greatest again? We're trying to settle this before we leave dinner tonight. But how can we just look for the needs around? How can we say as a church, more specifically, how can you say as a person of faith in Christ, how can I serve my community? How can I serve my friends? How can I serve my coworkers? How can I serve my neighbor? How can I serve my family? You know, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And as we pass these elements in just a few minutes, as you hold that, that bread and as you take that cup, I don't know if you have a very vivid imagination or not. But if you can, just ask yourself, what would I have done if Jesus got before me to wash my feet? How would I have reacted? How would I have felt? And then having kind of grappled with that for a few minutes, Ask God to remind you, to show you just one place where you can go and do likewise.